0: Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 261. <laughs>
1: You have to approach it, not that the bureaucracy is there intentionally, evilly harming you, that it's not designed at all. So you might want to think about how you might be able to make it work for you from that perspective.
0: That is the voice of Marina Nitza, a professional fixer of broken systems, a, a hacker, not of computers and technology, although she does do that too, but of the social phenomena that tend to emerge when people get together and try and accomplish, well, anything that involves shared goals or solving common problems or establishing an institution or a service or a business or a government.
1: Yeah, I'm Marina Nitza. I'm a partner in a crisis incident response firm called Layer Off, and I'm a fellow at New America's New Practice Lab, where I fix America's foster care system. I recently wrote a book called Hack Your Bureaucracy, and I used to be the chief technology officer of the Department of Veterans Affairs.
0: Yes, she is fixing America's foster care system currently. But before that, she fixed all sorts of other things, especially the VA, the United States Department of Veterans Affairs. I'm familiar with this institution because my father had to navigate its Byzantine, awful, terrible bureaucracy when he was trying to get his healthcare following the Vietnam War. And he didn't start doing that until he was in his 60s. So when she told me this story, I could not believe I had met someone who actually fixed something that had affected my life.
1: Early on in my time at VA, uh, I had very little budget and a very big dream, which was I wanted veterans to be able to manage and apply for all their benefits in one really easy to use website. Uh but I was fighting, among other things, like everybody had their budget on VA's 1,540 other websites that all sucked.
0: So even though she was part of an institution that had a budget in the billions, thanks to many levels of bureaucracy, she couldn't get funding for her concept, her single website pilot project, which she knew was needed and was sure would work. But after diligently hammering away at the system... She was eventually offered a chance to earn a few million dollars for her project, but that offer came with
1: a catch. To do it, I had to move a thousand pages of content articles from an old website to a new one before the old website contract had to come up for renewal.
0: If she could do that, Marina would get the cost savings from canceling the old system added to her budget.
1: That doesn't sound like a big deal, but I didn't have anybody on my team. And a 1,000 articles was too many. Like, I didn't have enough hours in the day if that was the only thing that I did. And I was complaining about this to the security guard when it occurred to me that he had a computer and a little bit of time on his hands. And so I said, hey, would you like to learn HTML? And maybe you could help me move these articles.
0: To her surprise, the security guard said, sure, I'd love to help. I'll come at lunch. And then to her great surprise, not only did he come at lunch... He brought a group of other security guards from all 11 floors of the building, all willing to sacrifice their lunch breaks to help fix the VA's confusing, messy, bloated, vast system of websites.
1: And we had a little HTML class, everybody took, you know, 75 pages, I ended up beating my deadline by a week. I got a multi-million dollar budget to build what is now VA.gov. It was successful. Um, And that was because I looked in a very unexpected place, which was the security guards as a direct route to getting a multi-million dollar IT budget uh, probably would not have come up in many people's bingo boards.
0: Marina Nitsa calls this approach cultivating the caress. It's one of 50 such concepts that she wrote down during all of this experience, fixing all these things. And this is just one story of a bazillion that she has based off all of her experiences, hacking bureaucracy, thinking of bureaucracy as a thing that you can hack and then writing down the things that seem to work over and over again. And she has 50 of these written down.
1: Yeah. So this is a term from Kurt Vonnegut's cat's cradle for anyone's read the book. And in that book, uh, that refers to people that God has hidden around the planet to accomplish a goal together. Uh, We use it more secularly. And the idea is who is hidden around your organization that can actually help you accomplish your goals? But I think way too often we approach a problem and we think that there are people hidden around to halt us, right? They're hidden around the VA trying to keep veterans from getting their benefits, trying to slow things down, trying to tie up money. Um, I think it's a much healthier approach to say, like, who might be around that could help me solve this problem in an unexpected way? everybody in your environment has something to, to give if you take the time to get to know them and understand what that might be. I mean, part of this is, I think, just being a human where I talked to him, who is our regular security guard, and I talked to him all the time, just small talk. Um, and that was why I, he was there. And I happened to be complaining about my big <laughs> problem of not being able to get a few million dollars because we would chat every day for a few minutes. Um, and I've actually since, this is a spoiler if anybody here ever comes to like a session I lead at a conference, but at the end of sessions, I always quiz people on, like, what's the name of the security guard or the hotel concierge or the conference organizer or whatever it may be, and, like, tell me one thing about them. And people always fail that at, like, 100%. It's pretty disappointing that we overlook so many people in our environment who are potentially very well-equipped to help us and are just also humans. You know, I'm not here looking for other people to help me all the time. Um, I think it was just a natural conversation, and he was willing and eager to learn Uh The downside, if you will, of that project is all the security guards then quit and took IT jobs.
0: In this episode of the "You Are Not So Smart" podcast, we sit down with Marina Nitsa, co-author of the new book "Hack Your Bureaucracy," who is this incredibly effective, deconstructing, figure things out kind of person who has fixed a lot of problems in bureaucracies over the years, and now wants to help you do the same, whether it's in your business, your practice, your activism, whatever it may be. And seriously, this is a person who has done a lot of amazing things. She was chief technology officer for the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs under President Obama, served as senior advisor on technology in the Obama White House, and was the first entrepreneur in residence at the U.S. Department of Education. She now serves on the advisory board for Foster America's Smartsheet and Think of Us and created an app called Task Tackler, which is a productivity app for type A personalities like herself. But we're going to talk about hack your bureaucracy and go through some examples from the book right after this commercial break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know What is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. and you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com/yanss today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com/yanss. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions And now we return to our program. Bureaucracy. Whenever human beings group up and start attempting to coordinate and deliberate and establish divisions of labor and ladders of accountability... Marina Nitsa says there's no way to avoid the emergence of bureaucracy. What is this thing, bureaucracy, scientifically speaking? Well, it's sort of a social superorganism made up of lots of brains and small groups each working together to keep an institution, organization, business, government, that sort of thing, alive. Each brain performs a function within the group, each group performs a function within its cluster, each cluster performs a function in the next largest cluster, and so on. To keep such a superorganism alive, all these brains and groups and clusters and superclusters must communicate and coordinate. And that's where we get the term red tape from. You know, cut through the red tape, because back in the day, paperwork considered to be correspondence was really, actually often tied together with red ribbons. The story goes that in the 16th century, under Charles V of Spain, administrators would bind important dossiers in red ribbon to indicate, whenever people were discussing things, that the things in those red ribbon-bound stacks of paper should be discussed first. And this practice spread to other monarchies and eventually made its way to other forms of government and... In the United States, for example, all the way through the early 20th century, official documents would often be bound by red string, red ribbons, and yes, red tape. Now, red tape refers to all the rules, written and unwritten, all the regulations and practices and habits that form within a bureaucracy meant to speed things up and make them easier, but that over time, tend to clog things up and make them harder. In fact, red tape is now a synonym for bureaucracy itself. Also, that word, bureaucracy, it comes from the word bureau, or desk, and that's because desks were commonly covered in a green felt called bureau, that felt became a desk and the desks became a collection of people working on things in offices and those offices became hierarchies with rules. And sometime in France in the 1700s, as people began to groan and grumble about how hard it was to get things done in ever larger governments and institutions, the word bureaumania began to be bandied about and that word eventually became bureaucracy, which usually referred to the idea that there was a government within the government of people at desks working on the problems in front of them at the expense of the problems forming in the institution as a whole. And most of the early sociologists focused on this very thing, from Karl Marx to Max Weber to Emile Durkheim. And that's just in the West. The concept of bureaucracy and how it creates inefficiencies that make it hard for civilizations to get things done appears in the writings of philosophers and academics and administrators in every culture all the way back, way, way back to the very first tax collectors and politicians so this is the thing that marina nitza attacks hacks solves and she wrote a book about how to do that
1: yeah i'm also on a book promotion tour and a lot of the interesting spaces and in figuring out like who especially like the public health space i found is like really fascinated in bureaucracy hacking in a way that i wasn't expecting so that's been good and then uh my foster care work i got this big federal rule changed in february so it's going to unlock $3 billion a year in cash payments to kinship caregivers living under the poverty line. So I feel really good about that. And now it's about like, what's the next puzzle to solve?
0: And I know this is going to be impossible for people to believe, but this is humility because uh, the the person I'm speaking with, your CV just keeps on going. The things that you have done this so far in your life are astounding. And all of them are things that like people ought to be doing, at least by my account, just Fixing the dumb parts of the world that should be fixed by now, and uh, getting us closer to Star Trek: The Next Generation, or whichever you know, somewhat utopian vision of a progressive future you you, you go with. Very impressive stuff. And then you have this book, which just says like, "Let's hack your your bureaucracy." Let's. Um, and good job picking a word that I always have to look up how to spell. I'm wondering, okay, how do, how does a person like yourself decide? I want to write a book about this topic in particular. How did this, because, you know, writing a book is not just, it's not like writing a blog post or like uh, making a YouTube video. It it very quickly becomes, oh no, I got myself into something. Why Why this topic? Why this thing in particular?
1: Yeah. I sort of stumbled into my public sector career entirely by accident. Uh, and I was very lucky to be around other people that I could learn from because my belief, which was completely inaccurate, was that bureaucracies are immovable, unchangeable, and they're to like actively harm people. And when I found myself inside one, I had peers like Tom Khalil and Kumar Garg, who had literally a dry erase board of tactics that work to get things done in the White House, the Department of Defense. And so when I ended up being chief technology officer of the VA, I took that dry erase board, you know, picture with me and then kept adding on to it as I was at the VA for more years, learning more things that worked. And I just kept hearing people's frustrations with bureaucracy saying, you know, it's immovable. I'm trying to go around it. I'm trying to go under it. When the real way is you got to go through it. You got to learn how it works and use its rhythms actually against itself. And it felt like a learnable tactic and skill that not enough people knew about. And so that was what I wanted to share in the book.
0: And as you know, because we've spoken about this before, like, like um, I got excited about this idea when we first spoke because uh, my dad, Vietnam vet, got waited way too long in life to actually start trying to go through the system. And then once I got introduced to the VA, I was like, "Oh my god, how does this ever work for anyone ever?" Like, uh, and this was in Mississippi where it was really bad. People would like talk about, "Oh, you don't want to go up there. You don't want to go up to Jackson and go to their VA." It's like that uh, Hieronymus Bosch painting, but with like paper clips. Like, like, like they would don't. You don't want to be part of that and he would have so he because of that he avoided getting care that he really needed for ptsd uh for and for everything else for all sorts of health related injury uh you know he was a- agent orange exposed and all that stuff so he because of the bureaucracy because of its infamy he waited till he was in his 60s to even attempt to go into a building where they he might have to deal with it and when I was introduced to it, I was like, "Oh yeah, this—you should have waited this long because this place doesn't make any sense. Why is everyone not doing what they ought to be doing?" What do you have as a message to people who out here who find themselves in a similar situation where they're like, "Oh, like I'm gonna have to—I'm going to have to interact with one of these things that I have a—I have your pre-book writing or pre-introduction to the White House epiphany. They, they're still in that place. Government sucks. Bureaucracy suck. There's nothing you can do about it. I'd rather not participate."
1: Yeah. I think a lot of us go into this believing that bureaucracies were designed to harm us, right? There's like a guy on the 12th floor and he's there trying to keep your dad from getting health care, trying to keep him from getting his benefits. Uh, and I often tell people like that would be a much easier problem to solve because if there was a bad guy on the 12th floor, we would take turns, you know, blocking him inside while we undid all the harm that he did and everybody would get health care. The problem is that these systems were never designed in the first place. And particularly in government and the bigger government you get, Um, nobody owns or even has visibility into the end-to-end process. So the VA used to be such a nightmare to interact with because it was 83 different benefit lines and 150 different hospitals all operating independently uh, and instead of operating from the perspective of the veteran. So a huge helpful bureaucracy hack that really moved the needle there was instead shifting it to say, like, what's the veteran's experience here? Uh, When I was at VA starting in 2012, the day you separated from the military, you would get over a hundred letters in your mailbox from the VA and they would be in different fonts, different logos, different instructions, different websites. And the average veteran we interviewed would like, I would throw them out because also the last possible time I want to hear from the VA is the day after I separated. This is not welcome. And I certainly don't welcome a hundred envelopes. And so uh, I would say like the VA has gotten way, way, way better. uh, And Is a lot more easier to navigate. But for those of you stuck in bureaucracies that are a lot less easy to navigate, uh, you have to approach it, not that the bureaucracy is there intentionally, evilly harming you, that it's not designed at all. So you might want to think about how you might be able to make it work for you from that perspective.
0: This is interesting. I like the idea. I don't like it. I mean, I am intellectually stimulated by the concept that bureaucracies are are emergent properties of people interacting, I guess, if I'm hearing you correctly. Yes. And it's like... uh, if you start reading about anyth- anything historical whatsoever, you start seeing like, oh yeah, everybody's just worried about their own day-to-day life and you mush us all together and some sort of strange ecosystem of human interaction starts to form. If I'm hearing you correctly, that's what most bureaucracies turn out to be?
1: Yeah. We actually tried in the course of writing the book to find an organization that was not a bureaucracy. Uh, and this hunt led us literally to a cooperative grocery store in Berkeley, California. And it turned out even that. Was a bureaucracy that had rules written and unwritten, people with different risk and incentive frameworks that were operating absolutely out of their own incentives. And an exercise we walk people through in the book is really mapping out what those incentives are. Uh, Some people think this sounds a little manipulative or psycho, but I think it's just accurate that you wanna understand like who are the decision makers, what are they motivated by, what are they afraid of, what are they incentivized by? And given that, it's almost like a game that has rules, right? And now you can operate within that game to get to the outcome that you want. Oh,
0: that's so rad. Hey, how did you get into this world? How does, how do you become a person that does this?
1: I have always been someone that loved solving problems. You know, those logic puzzles where it's like Bob was sitting next to Mary, but like, and he had a banana or whatever. I obsessively loved those from the time I was in kindergarten. I taught myself how to code when I was in elementary school. Uh, I actually made fan sites for my favorite soap opera stars and this was just in the nascent of the World Wide Web, and not knowing I was twelve, a lot of those stars reached out to me and paid me to make their official sites. So I what? learned. I had my own company from the time I was about twelve, uh, which was very much on my alley. But over time, I didn't want to make web pages for celebrities. I wanted to solve problems with technology, and so I became a business process engineer, uh, where I can I increasingly like would use technology to help businesses run more efficiently. And then I ended up in the federal government entirely by accident. Uh, when I was 26, I saw Todd Park, who is the chief technology officer of the United States at TechCrunch Disrupt, announcing a new offshoot of the White House Fellows program called the Presidential Innovation Fellows. And he said he was looking for 18 tech-savvy entrepreneurs to come in and disrupt government. And myself as like a lifelong diehard libertarian was like, who also was a college dropout and an entrepreneur, I was like, I don't fit this mold at all. But it said if you sent in your resume, you'd be added to the mailing list. And I thought this was some sort of fancy federal government, you know, bureaucracy itself. Like you can't even join a mailing list without a resume. But I still, for some reason, bought this $3 graphic template on the Internet. So I had a beautiful blue resume. Uh, I applied, didn't hear anything for many months, and then got a call on a Thursday. I lived in Seattle at the time from Richard Culatta at the Department of Ed asking if I wanted to be his fellow, but I had to move to D.C. by Tuesday. And that sounded just crazy enough that I was willing to, to give it a shot. Went to D.C. for you know just six months. Uh, six months later, found myself working in the White House. And six months to the day after that, was the chief technology officer of the V.A.
0: Whoa. <laughs> nice. As you started to accomplish things at the V.A., and I'll, I'll swear I'll ask about your book uh, next question. Uh, as you started to accomplish things about at the V.A. and things were getting done, did you get any... The, okay, here's the reason I'm asking this question. The reason I'm asking this question is like... Some of us need validation and feedback that from other human beings. Other people don't need that at all. They're just like I just like seeing the problem fixed. So I'm wondering, as you would fix things, at the VA, and things would start working properly. Did you get that kind of feedback at all, or did or did the or did the, this you know emergent superorganism that you that you're dealing with just you know you know it just changes and does what it does. It's not like when you help the ocean, the ocean gives you a thank you note. I'm wondering, did you get any kind of feedback from? this bureaucracy that you were working on?
1: I would say I got years of negative feedback. Uh, as I tried to make change, the feedback was, you know, my change was wrong, unwelcome, unnecessary. Uh, and I'm glad I had that experience because I have the time horizon now to see, not that I was right, that's not the lesson here, but that uh, it was possible to make change and that change really fundamentally changed people's lives. So that, you know, now I work in foster care, I'm five years in on foster care now and I see the same thing. We're like the first couple of years, I got no validation of any kind. People told me to knock it off. They didn't want me in their meetings. And now five years later, you're able to make like pretty substantial change.
0: Yeah, I understand. There are people who just turn away because of that. They're like, well, I'm not getting appreciated in the way that I need to be appreciated. So I'm going to go somewhere else where somebody will appreciate me.
1: But that's good to know about other people because that's part of their risk and incentive framework that you want to lean into, right? So if someone else responds to external feedback and is motivated by that, and you need them to help you with a change, think about how your change can get them that external positive feedback.
0: So for anyone listening, this book has 50 suggestions, 50 things you sh- should be doing. And uh, it's not just like one sentence and three paragraphs the, for, pre- for each one. Each one of them could have been a book all, all of it, all on its own kind of thing. Or you could have you could have brought this, you could have definitely brought this down to 10 just 10 things and saved yourself some time. But no, you get 50 of these. And I just took out a few that I thought were really interesting and sometimes they just had funky titles. The first one I picked out was Look Between the Silos. What does that mean?
1: Yeah. This is uh, my favorite. All the tactics, if they are my children, this is my favorite one because that's one I use literally every day. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, bureaucracies are often operated as silos where people are in charge of their team, their department, their step in a process. And it's very often the case that literally nobody is in charge of the end-to-end process or sees what happens at the handoffs. And when you try to change someone's silo, it's almost like they have sentry guards posted outside. They're looking for you, they wanna keep you out, and they're gonna defend against change. But in the spaces between the silos where there's handoffs between departments or steps or teams, there's often tremendous space to make change uh, with no opposition at all. And uh, one of my favorite stories here is I was helping a state uh, shorten its foster parent application timeline. And that doesn't sound particularly important, except there are babies, toddlers sleeping on the office floor with available grandparents, aunts, uncles who can't get that baby into their home until they finish this paperwork process. And in many cases, this was taking 300 days or more. So, huge potential like crisis for these kids. And I approached this problem the way that I usually do, which is I followed real applications from start to finish. And I mean followed. If it went to the mailroom, I went to the mailroom. If it went to a fax machine, I showed up on the other side of the fax machine. And at one point, I end up at this woman's desk, and her step was to request the applicant's driving record from the DMV. And she complains about this step the whole time to me. What is wrong with the DMV? I have to use this carbon copy paper, the kind where you press really hard. I have to get a stamp they're living in the 19th century. I hate the DMV so much. And I did what this really power, like passionate public servant was not empowered to do, which is I then went to the DMV and I said, hey, can you show me how you process driving record requests? And the woman there said, oh yeah, they come in my electronic system here on the left. I click, click, click. I get them back in about an hour. And I said, well, wait a minute, where does the carbon copy paper fit in? And she's like, oh my God, you were at child welfare. Those people live in the 19th century. Why do they keep mailing me this form instead of emailing me like the rest of the state? And within the next hour, I introduced these two women. They immediately switched over to the electronic process because there was no incentive for anybody to keep the status quo. And it shaved 32 days off the foster parent application process from you know looking between the silos. And there are so many opportunities like that in every single situation I have been in. From big banks to big governments to any sort of bureaucracy, there's always lots to do between the silos.
0: Beware of red teams and problem lists. I love all these titles, by the way, because there's always a little bit of mystery as to what are you talking about. So, what does this mean?
1: Yeah. So, we tr- try to, to make them memorable. So, it's really common when someone's entering a bureaucracy for the first time, whether you're an outsider as a constituent or you're a new employee, to look around and see everything that's broken and write it down. And often people are rewarded for this in the short term, right? It's like, oh, look at Marina; she's so smart. She wrote this long list of things that are wrong, and she's like so uh, observant about this this environment. But what happens quickly is you start realizing the list of problems is actually not quite so simple. Or everybody's known about them for eighteen or twenty years, and there is a really good reason why it hasn't been solved so far. And I learned this lesson very much the hard way in my six months at the White House. My job. Uh, Was to be the technology representative in this meeting about ending the VA disability claims backlog. And at the time, it took over four years to process a veteran's disability claim. And there were literally offices that were buckling under the weight of unprocessed paper, like ceilings caving in. And so I approached this similarly to my previous story, where I said, okay, the only way I know how to do this is I'm going to fly around the country following real claims from start to finish and seeing where the gaps are. And I wrote a 99 point problem list of all the things that were broken in this uh, process. And again, I'm not at the VA now, I'm at the White House, I'm an outsider. I write this report, I publish it, I present it in the Roosevelt Room, which is one of the fanciest rooms in the the White House complex. I get a standing ovation from staff. So I am rewarded for this behavior. Uh, Fast forward a little bit, I'm now the CTO of the VA. Uh, The VA gets a formal request from the White House to respond to its disability claims backlog problem list, the one that I wrote, I am now responsible for responding to. Uh, And boy, was that hard because now I understood more of the nuances of why this or that was done in this way or why this was not just solvable with a a quick fix and was actually much more systemic. And I was ultimately unable to respond to my own (laughs) list of problems was an awkward position to be in. Uh, And so it's a behavior we've seen a lot. Again, I've just experienced it that way as a, a hard lesson learned, that even if you see problems around, it's best to kind of keep them to yourself when you're new, or maybe run them by one or two trusted colleagues quietly, because it's very possible it's a much harder or different or more complex situation. And you don't want to alienate people by them being, oh, yeah, the new guy or girl, you're, you know, making it look so easy, and she's so smart. Um, and it's going to make it really hard to build trust with your colleagues going forward if you enter on that note.
0: Figure out the real org chart. What are we talking about here?
1: Yeah, so most organizations have an org chart. That's probably a common and familiar term where, you know, Joe reports to Barbara who reports to Sue or however that may work, but that doesn't actually demonstrate like institutional power or resources. And so you, uh, really want to we we encourage making a stakeholder map instead that really maps out what you were saying earlier about like what are people's motivations? What do they view as risky, what what drives them? And then you can consult this chart again when you're trying to make a change in an organization as you understand like who do you need on your team in what order, and what might you be able to trade or say or use to get them involved. Uh, again, it, it might sound manipulative, but like this is how people work, whether or not they document it is my belief. So we may as well document it, although you don't want to put it on like your dry erase board visible in your office <laughs> where other people can see it. Uh, it's, it's a pretty private strategic document. Um, and that may be, you know, some people are motivated by uh, pay increases, uh, recognition, media, awards, a ni- an email saying, well done. Other people, the last thing they want in the world is to appear in a news article. Like They're motivated by like maintaining the status quo. So you may need different people at different points in the process. You might want that status quo person actually to weigh in very early, because if they highlight something in your plan that they find risky, you're going to want to mitigate that in some way, right? You're not going to want that person to be the first person to stick their neck out. Um, But someone else, maybe you can get to sign off on your approval with a note from the boss or the CEO or a nomination for... Uh, an employee award or something like that, um, and you also want to think about how people get their information, right? Some, especially as you go higher up on an org chart, some people have staff, some people have briefing books that they get that they take home with them on the weekend. Some people read are really good at email. Some people text. Some people like coffee. You can get pretty detailed about like, all right, I need five people's votes. What are the way to get to those five people? How many of it is through their staff? Who needs to feel like they got read in first? Who? Uh, is going to need to see the finished perfect product or they're going to, you know, squawk because it had a typo in it. So uh, we have a long list in the book of like different factors and variables you can think about because you're making your map.
0: Understand why, like I read this and I think about TED Talks, but your understand why is different from the one that I was anticipating. What do you mean by understand why?
1: Yeah, there's the the Toyota principle of asking the five whys, which is you want to keep asking why until you get to a source. So often parts of bureaucracies that people think are immovable or unchangeable are actually never written down in the first place and are what we call water cooler rules or something it's always been done that way because it's always been done that way and not because it's written down. Um, We even had this as a case when I was trying to make my first hire at the VA. Uh, It took me two years to hire my first person because We, as sort of a a canary in the coal mine, had top Silicon Valley technologists, like objectively to anybody, like extremely qualified technologists, apply for my position. And initially, I did this bureaucracy hack wrong. I complained to the bureaucracy. I was like, cool people don't use USA jobs, and cool people don't have federal resume formats. And HR was like, I don't know what you're talking about, Marina, but people use USA jobs every day. And people apply for jobs every day on it. So our system is working just fine. And so I had these like eminently, amazingly qualified people applying for the process, and they weren't coming out the other side. They weren't even making the initial resume screen, which is a pass-fail. And so that kind of caused, that's why, 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 why? What is happening at this step? And HR said, well, the only people that can do the pass-fail resume screen of technologists our HR professionals in our team. They're the only ones qualified to do that. And after many, many whys and involving other agencies, et cetera, it turns out that was a made up water cooler rule. And then we said, well, let's pilot. What if we have technologists do the pass fail for other technologists with the resume? Just to pilot for you know, 10, 10 people. And because it was never written down as a rule in the first place, we had the flexibility to try this out. And it turns out it worked better because technologists know how to read another technologist's resume. This changed the way all hiring is done in the entire federal government. Now, like psychiatrists at the VA review other psychiatrists' resumes, and HR professionals review other HR professional resumes, but subject matter experts do the pass-fail. And that's probably my my biggest accomplishment of the asking why, but uh, it can really uncover for you the source ruling. Oftentimes, the source is also a lot more flexible than people realize. If you can get down, down to like the policy manual sentence or the rule that is that people are pointing back to, it may have a lot more flexibility. Again, it may not exist. Or if you do get to it and it isn't as flexible as you need it to be, then you know what to change. Uh, we just uh, changed a big federal rule around foster care licensing, and it all came down to the word or in a sentence. And I'm not exaggerating in any way. And it took a couple of years to get the whys, it was way more than five whys, to realize that this this word was the problem and know what to fix it. But if once you narrow it down to, aha, the word or is the problem, it needs to uh, be a different word, then that's, that's fixable. Slow, but fixable.
0: Okay, here's the one that I saved for last because it's such a great title for it. If you're one of your pieces of advice for hacking a bureaucracy, should you find yourself frustrated and wondering does anything ever get done around here is stab people in the chest. Okay. What are we talking about with this one?
1: Yeah, this is uh, one of the harder tactics to do even today, but I remind myself to do it pretty constantly. Uh, so I think we all have a pretty bad tendency of stabbing people in the back and say, there's like a vote happening. You're going to come with your slides or your arguments and you're going to spring them on the other side uh, in front of, you know, a potential decision maker uh, and I think a lot of times that's how we think things get done. Like in a meeting, I'm going to spring. I think a lot of your book, frankly, speaks to this too of how people approach this in inappropriately, um, where they're going to spring their facts and then the other side's going to spring their facts and you're going to kind of battle it out. Uh, that is totally dysfunctional. And occasionally you will win, but it's really more an accident than any strategic uh, benefit. What you should do instead is stab people in the chest. And by that, I mean, if I'm going to disagree with you in a meeting, I'm going to meet with you one-on-one ahead of time. I'm going to show you my slides, or I'm going to walk through your slides, and I'm going to say, here on slide 13, I'm going to disagree with you about this. I'm going to say this, and then I'm going to disagree about that. The point is not to change their mind in this case. It's to build trust that you won't stab them in the back. So they know what you're going to say. Sure, if they ha- they may change a, a thing or two, but they may very well kind of still hold their ground. But it builds a really unconventional and very successful kind of working relationship Because you might disagree vehemently on one thing. And then in the next meeting, you guys need to agree and work together really closely on something else. And once you've stabbed someone in the back, it's very hard to come back from. So stabbing people in the chest, basically the idea is they should see you coming and they should know what your argument is going to be and what your position is. Um, And I think that's a way, way more effective way of getting things done in organizations of all sizes.
0: Yeah, I like this a lot. Like uh, my favorite. When I think in zombie apocalypse survival terms, like I know where everybody's at, and I'm totally okay with being a person. If someone disagree, I disagree with them on everything, and we see don't see eye to eye, but we can work together on problems as long as I know you're not gonna stab me in the back. I love this so much; it's one of my it's my favorite one. Uh, I need everyone to be authentically shitty yeah. so that I can navigate that. Please be be. Let's get our deal breakers out front. Tell me what you're all about, and we'll work. I appreciate that a lot, and I'm glad that you're asking people to please do that. Here's the a, a thing I want to ask you as we like wrap up is, uh, I imagine sometimes when it, people are listening to these episodes, I often think about people who are trying to figure out what they want to do with their, their lives, uh, who are like thinking about trying to go into a career field, or also think about people who are just like. Uh, oh wait, there are other people who want to fix things. I didn't know that. And it reminds me of this cultivate the carass thing. Like, the, I bet people listening, there is a, a network of people who are like, oh no, this is a chance I could find the others and work on a thing. I'm um, assuming you're not the only one. There are others like you. How could people who find this extremely compelling get into this kind of work? How could they find a way to do stuff like what you do?
1: Yeah. Uh, we have a chapter in the book called Find the Doers, actually. And so part of that is, where is a, what is the thing you want to do? Like, what is the thing that you want to fix or in the space? And how can you find other people that are trying? I mean, there's so many internet communities now that I think is one way. Or showing up, frankly, is another way. Uh, you don't have to go overnight to become the chief technology officer of the agency that you want to fix. It might be that you join an advocacy group or, frankly, starting out with, like, an email list or a meetup or something small and talking to people So many people have tried so many things before you that as you can build relationships with them, that's going to give you a much clearer roadmap of what's been tried, why it didn't work, and therefore what you might be able to do that would work going forward.
0: Who do you hope buys this book? And then like in your ideal outcome, what do they get out of it?
1: Yeah. So there's a song by Frank Sinatra called My Way, and he sings about how if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. And so my hope in writing the book was in sharing stories about the White House or the VA or the Department of Defense. Those are some of the world's hardest bureaucracies. And so the tactics that work there, they also work in your parent-teacher association, in your homeowners association. Those have been some of my favorite stories to get since the book has come out, are people who are using it to fix the bureaucracies that they're in every day. Uh, And so I hope that uh, anybody that feels like they're stuck in a bureaucracy or they have some change they want to make in their community picks up the book. It was Written intentionally, every tactic is a, a mini chapter, as it were, that you could literally open to a random page and potentially be inspired by something to try. Every tactic does not work in every environment, but uh, it's very likely that one of the tactics will work in your environment.
0: How can people keep up with you? Like, if they want to find you, they want to reach out to you, they want to see what you do, like, what's your web social presence stuff all like?
1: Yeah, you can find me on most of the socials at marina Nitza N I T Z E, and also hackyourbureaucracy.com. You can see we write blog posts, uh, share stories of bureaucracy hacking. We love to hear them as well. Uh, and if you're having a, a crisis, you can hire my firm at Layer Aleph. <whistles> H-A-N-D.
0: Layer Olaf. that's L-A-Y-E-R-A-L-E-P-H. That's the name of her incidence response team, Marina Nitzi. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about, including... All of the links to all of Nitsi's stuff, head to youarenotsosmart.com or check the show notes inside your podcast player. My new book, How Minds Change, it's a year old, but I still consider it new. It's out there. You can find a link to all of its stuff in this episode's show notes right there in your podcast player. The homepage for How Minds Change has a roundtable video of a group discussion of experts, persuasion experts who are featured in the book. You can read a sample chapter, you can download a discussion guide, you can sign up for the newsletter, read reviews, you can also find links to the many, many podcasts and YouTube channels that I've appeared on, telling everybody about it. And uh, I'll be on the road constantly for the rest of this year, both working on my new book, Genius. It's about what does the word genius really mean? Why is it so difficult to define it? Keep up with that in all the places that I usually post things. You can go to Stitcher, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Apple Music, Audible, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or you are so Smart.com to listen to all the past episodes and be updated when new episodes come along. You can follow me on Twitter, at NotSmartBlog, and at David Mcraney I'm at David mcraney The show is at NotSmartBlog. We're also on Facebook at slash you are not so smart. And if you'd like to support this operation, help make it better, help pay for transcription and other features, go to Patreon.com slash you are not so smart. Pitching in at any amount will get you the show ad-free. The higher amounts get you posters, T-shirts, sign books, and other stuff. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. This music is banjo Apocalypse. And the easiest way to support this show is just tell everybody you know about it. And if there was an episode that really hit for you, share that one. And check back in about two weeks for a fresh new episode.